What's up, everybody? It's James with another episode of Farmers Jam Radio. Today, we are chatting with Jamie Berger, who has been working on a very critical issue in North Carolina. We read an article of hers featured in Vox, but she also has a documentary about the same subject called The Smell of Money, which is all about pork processing plants in eastern North Carolina. Interviews like these are exactly why we started Farmer's Jam Radio, to dive deeper into the real issues surrounding agriculture, because this isn't just about producing food. We are so grateful for Jamie for making the time to join us, but more importantly for digging into this issue, for reaching out to the community and giving them a voice to fight back against a really predatory industry. We hope you enjoy the interview and we hope you subscribe to Farmer's Jam Radio for more interviews like these for now. We'll catch you on the other side. Here's our interview with Jamie Berger. All right, everybody, we are back here on Farmer's Jam Radio, joined today by Jamie Berger, who is a documentarian, has uh, recently released, recently premiered a documentary called The Smell of Money, and uh, we featured an article uh, written in Vox called How Black North Carolinians Pay the Price for World's Cheap Bacon. Jamie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, uh, thank you for such a compelling article and compelling work here about um, animal agriculture. It's something we've been writing a lot about in our newsletter. Um, you know, it, it's just such a such an impactful area. And uh, there is so much... Uh, <laughs> well, we'll kind of get into it, but I think as you kind of read the article you wrote, you'll see, you know, there is so much energy behind squashing any criticism of our animal agriculture, um, and we'll we'll kind of dive into how all of that plays out. But I, I just have to say, to the beginning, um, this article is is very hard to read. I mean, every every paragraph kind of unveils new layers of harm and destruction happening in eastern North Carolina, um, particularly borne by um, black and brown communities in eastern North Carolina, where you note that hogs outnumber people 35 to 1 and create 10 billion gallons of waste per year. I mean, these numbers are just absolutely astounding. They really are. It's it's. I've struggled to find comparisons that, uh, and you know, can enlighten people just about how how much waste we're really talking about because it's it's astronomical. So these um, are you know we call them CAFOs for short, but it's concentrated animal factory operations. Uh, and, and, you know, these are what we call farms these days. They really are f indoor factories. They look nothing like the old McDonald farm. I think a lot of people like to imagine um, is our current farming, um, you know, uh, system. Um, but let's start with the manure because, you know, that is really what all of this story really, really centers around. You have, again, billion, well, 
hundreds of thousands of hogs creating billions of gallons of waste every year. How do these CAFOs store the manure? Yeah, that's that's really the central piece of this issue. It comes down to the manure. So, yeah, like you mentioned, there are almost 9 million pigs in North Carolina, and many of them, most of them are concentrated in the eastern part of the state. Uh, and, you know, when you think of a farm, many people still still picture kind of, like you said, old McDonald's farm, red barn, animals out on pasture. But today's farms, as many of us know, don't look like that at all and don't operate that way. Um, so in concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs, mm. animals are confined indoors in long kind of metal buildings. Um, you might see, you know, up to six or eight buildings on one farm holding thousands of hogs each. And, you know, of course, as as hogs do, as pigs do, they pee and they poop and that manure falls through metal slats in the floor of the barns and then is swept into a giant pit. Uh, the industry calls it a lagoon, um, but those of us who are not a big fan of this uh, waste disposal method might refer to them as cesspools or, you know, pits of manure. Regardless, they're the size of several football fields, typically. And the waste is just stored in these and they're open air, which means that, you know, many different kinds of harmful gases escape from them into the atmosphere. Um, releasing all kinds of nasty smells. These things are horrible to be around. And then perhaps even worse is that once these lagoons start to fill up, you know, the farmers have to do something with that waste. So what they do is they pump it through basically a massive kind of, it looks like a massive garden hose. It goes out into a field and then they spray it into the air over a field, over fields, kind of under the pretext of saying that they're fertilizing crops. But truly, that's not really the point. The point is just to get the waste out of the lagoon onto the field. And then ultimately, we know from mountains of research that's been done on this issue, it doesn't stay on the farm. This this waste manure and, you know, it's also... Um, in addition to urine and feces, there's blood, there's antibiotics, there's chemicals, you know, cleaning agents used on the farm. All of that is pumped into these lagoons and then sprayed out over fields. And, you know, public health researchers have found that this has a huge effect, a negative effect on quality of life in the area, which, you know, you can imagine living within, you know, in many cases, it's these these pits of manure and the spray fields, as they're called, are, you know, a couple tenths of a mile away, literally right across the road or over a tree line or just across, you know, a field from from community members' homes. And so, you know, researchers have found all kinds of negative health impacts. And the main thing that you hear about if you or experience yourself if you visit areas where these kinds of farms are very densely um, concentrated is the smell. It's just overwhelming. It's overpowering. It hits you in the face. It, in some cases, it causes people to throw up, you know, to um, feel dizzy, to have shortness of breath. It's just, it's, it's absolutely unbearable. 
I, I can totally imagine because honestly, reading the article made me want to gag multiple times. I mean, I'm just, you know, thinking of walking outside on a summer day and feeling a mist, a cooling mist, and all of a sudden realizing it is hog manure. I mean, it, it was absolutely disgusting. And I'm I'm also thinking about just a, just a comparison of like, you know, I can walk in my neighborhood and sometimes you'll see the occasional sign that's like, hey, make sure you pick up your dog's poop in my yard. Like, I don't want that there. We're talking about football fields full of manure that are being sprayed into the air just to, just to really drive home, like the degree to which people don't want any manure <laughs> near them at all. This is just such an extreme, um, it just it's so extreme. Um, now you're, just to get back to that smell again, that is what is known as the smell of money. Can you, can you share a little bit about, you know, how much money are we talking about here? Yes, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that, just to kind of back up a little bit, that term came from, uh, I think, likely the person who coined it, I don't know for sure, um, is a man named Wendell Murphy, who was, who people call, you know, Boss Hog. There was a story in North Carolina's uh, big newspaper, News and Observer, that won the Pulitzer Prize called Boss Hog, all about this pork industry executive who really transformed the pork industry um, in North Carolina and then has exported that uh, way of producing pork around the world. Hmm. And Wendell Murphy, you know, called the smell the smell of money because he essentially was able to find a way to put millions of independent family farmers out of business and consolidate power um, for himself and the, and the pork industry and rake in billions and billions of dollars. I don't know off the top of my head how much the company that he founded and then was now acquired later acquired by Smithfield Foods is actually worth, but it's a lot. Now today, Smithfield is the world's largest pork company. It has a massive presence in North Carolina. Yeah, Smithfield is the largest pork company in the world and has a major presence in North Carolina. And, you know, I think it's important to to acknowledge that there is revenue generated by this industry and it does offer some benefits to communities in terms of jobs, um, you know, economic benefits in terms of jobs and other things. But when we talk about the jobs that the pork industry provides, most of them are low wage, low skill, and um, some of the most dangerous jobs that you could possibly imagine having, especially in the slaughterhouse and in farms themselves, you know, workers are exposed to all kinds of hazards. And again, the smell, the odor, the um, the chemicals and, and toxins that are present in these facilities. Um, it's, and, you know, and much of the pork produced in North Carolina, I think is a, it's important to note as well, 25% of it is exported to other countries, to China, Mexico, Japan, Korea, other places. So in many cases, it's, it's really that, you know, the cost of the world's appetite for pork is borne by communities like those in eastern North Carolina that have to suffer next to these facilities. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think that we 
Something we have to start really considering when we talk about jobs created is also lifestyles created, because you mentioned before that millions of small family farms have been put out of business. Um, and whilst those small family farms may not generate lots and lots of profit like these CAFOs do, they do actually create healthy, sustainable lifestyles for families. They create healthy rural communities that are ultimately being decimated by, uh, you know, massive international uh, or multinational corporations um, who are essentially just extracting resources from these communities in exchange for a handful of jobs. Um, we, we've talked about the smell. Um, I wanted to get a bit more into the water supply uh, because the, uh, the way that these, you know, quote unquote, lagoons operate, uh, it can be very harmful to the local water supply, particularly during hurricane season. Can you share a little bit about the impact these operations have on local water supplies? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you mentioned, especially in hurricane season, this uh, method of collecting waste in a massive pit and spraying it out over fields causes all kinds of problems. But it definitely does, you know, when there's when there aren't major storms or, or flooding events as well. Um, the problem is that the just amount of waste is far far exceeds the capacity of the surrounding land to absorb it. So what's happening is, you know, farmers are spraying waste into the air, into the into fields. It, it can travel several miles downwind and then, you know, land in bodies of water, land on people's homes, um, polluting their, you know, not only their, um, their air, but also their groundwater. So it's a big problem for groundwater. Um, lagoons can break and overflow and actually leak uh, manure into the ground. So, you know, that's a big problem, especially in rural areas where many folks rely on well water for, for drinking. And it's an added expense to them if they have, you know, their wells contaminated by this pollution and then need to pay to get onto the county water line. So kind of talking about not only are you faced with the pollution itself, but then there's an added um, cost and added, you know, um, expense that they are having to pay for, for dealing with this. And, you know, hurricanes, North Carolina is quite prone to hurricanes. I grew up there. I experienced them. I, it feels like almost every, you know, hurricane season, almost every year, there was at least a tropical storm or something like that. And with climate change, of course, they're only getting more powerful and severe. So what happens when hurricanes come in, um, you know, they cause at times dozens of these lagoons to breach, to overflow. And then what you have is just floodwaters traveling for miles throughout the state, contaminated with manure, you know, filling up people's yards. I um, met, I've met many residents who say their whole yards, their homes were flooded and contaminated with with manure and you can imagine what it must feel like to, you know, not only be terrified by the potential loss of your home or your life or your, your friends and family's belongings in, in a hurricane, but also know that what's coming into your home is water that's, that is essentially, you know, liquefied poop. I mean, it's just 
it's awful. It's awful to imagine. And that's the reality for many of the families who live near these farms during hurricane season. They're built into the floodplain of North Carolina. The eastern part of the state is low-lying. It's, you know, it's especially prone to flooding and to these kinds of disasters. And that's exactly where the the CAFOs are located. And, you know, speaking of which, a lot of people may have be familiar, at least in terminology, of the Clean Water Act, which, you know, <laughs> according to the name, should be preventing uh, some of these incidents from happening. Um, but these companies have figured out a way to kind of escape or avoid um, certain regulations. Can you get into some of the strategies they're using to kind of fly under the radar of the EPA? Yeah, so the pork industry in particular and other animal agriculture industries have enormous political power. They have really wielded their their funds, their resources, to buy politician support for their practices. And this happens not only on a local level, but on a state and federal level as well. And in the case of the Clean Water Act, um, which is enforced by the EPA, the Clean Water Act does require technically the EPA to hold factory farms accountable. But because of the industry's extreme uh, political power, they've been able to basically prevent the EPA from taking really any meaningful action to address pollution, to address water pollution or air pollution. Um, So the EPA really only regulates the largest CAFOs, which is um, for hog farms, that's CAFOs with more than 2,500 pigs over 55 pounds. Um, And it also sanctions the waste disposal methods that I have Described. So according to the EPA, it's perfectly fine for CAFOs to store their manure in huge open air pits and then to spray it into the air, you know, um, over communities. And we know that that's just a terrible, it's a terrible process and it's, it's so harmful to, to the environment and the people who near, live nearby. Um, and there's no monitoring requirement. So CAFOs under, you know, EPA regulations don't have to monitor the pollutants that they release into waterways. And part of the problem is that the EPA does leave a lot of enforcement up to individual states. And in in states like North Carolina, for example, the pork industry has even more political power. You know, many of the legislators uh, in North Carolina have been involved in the pork industry or, um, you know, related industries, the agriculture industry. They're very open about their support for the industry and its practices because, you know, they're, they're buddies. They're basically buddies with, um, with the industry and as a result do almost nothing to hold uh, polluters accountable. So it's a, it's a problem at every level of our government and, you know, something that um, communities have been fighting for for a long time to try to, make sure that their voices are heard. In many cases, you know, it's um, legislators go against the the needs and the desires of their own constituents in supporting this industry. We've seen that many times in North Carolina and it's results in, you know, it results in folks facing 
literally decades of pollution and, and not having any kind of, you know, recourse through through their elected officials uh, to address this problem. And I, I think you do a great job of highlighting that in the article because you share that at one point residents did win a lawsuit to pay for damages, um, which was you know mostly to things like property values. Um, and what I found most astounding, well, I, guess, I suppose two things were really astounding about the lawsuit. So first of all, it's a good thing that the residents were afforded some relief. But then, you know, kind of highlighting what you were talking about in terms of the industry and the political system being, um, you know, hand in hand, the payout was reduced due to a bill that was passed in North Carolina that limited the amount of damage they were responsible for. But also, (laughs) despite acknowledging the fact that these were causing harm to the nearby community, they are still allowed to continue on with their practices. I mean, it, and, and then I think, if I'm not mistaken, your article noted that there were then bills being worked on to prevent additional lawsuits. So, I mean, it, it, despite the fact that in a court of law, it's been proven that this is harmful, they're, they're going to be allowed to continue. I mean, it's just, it's exasperating to, to hear all of this. Yeah, it really is. I I definitely don't want to underplay the monumental achievement that it was to win a lawsuit against, win a series of lawsuits against mm-hmm. the world's largest pork company. I mean, it, yeah. it took nine years. The, the lawyers on the side of the plaintiffs supporting the plaintiffs poured their hearts and souls into it. And of course, so much money, uh, you know, and the plaintiffs themselves, the community worked so hard to achieve that victory. And, you know, juries in every single case that was tried, five cases, sided with the plaintiffs. They said, we know this is wrong. This is this is unquestionably not something that someone should be allowed to do to another human being that a company should be allowed to do, you know, and they wanted to punish Smithfield for that. They wanted to provide um, the residents over half a billion dollars. But, of course, as you mentioned, that was reduced due to a law that had been uh, pushed forward by industry-friendly lawmakers. So they didn't end up getting, um, you know, as much money as they, I believe, and others believe deserve. Um, Not that any amount of money can really... uh, you know, justify or or kind of help remedy the um, well, right. the I mean, damages think, that they've suffered for so long. Yeah, because in, in the true justice would be a both and solution where you're paying for the damages and stopping the harm. But you know, it looks at this point that they will just be able to continue essentially unmitigated. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's it's true and. You know, the lawsuit concluded um, last year, I believe, and my colleague and I have been back to North Carolina since then. And there, you know, the industry is is in full force spraying waste on on folks' homes and into the air, into into communities, just as much, if not more, than they ever have been. So really nothing, from my perspective, has changed and I think what we're seeing now, unfortunately, is that the industry is really trying to greenwash this practice 
by um, turning waste into fuel. This is kind of the new frontier for um, for the pork industry saying, okay, you, you, you know, we've gotten this criticism, we've lost this lawsuit, we recognize um, there's some there are some problems, though they don't say this, you know, they don't say this publicly that they recognize there are problems, but clearly they're seeing the writing on the wall, you know, and are now saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn this into uh, renewable energy by uh, taking the waste and and then turning it, turning it into fuel, which actually just entrenches the existing pollution problems, doesn't do anything to improve the smell, or, you know, the waste disposal practices that I that we've talked about still very much, you know, a part of that system. And the only difference is that now the industry has another revenue stream, another way of making money from this waste and from the exploitation of, of these communities, which is, is really discouraging to see. Yeah, I've uh, I've been keeping up with that that story as well. It is being pushed as a climate change solution by the federal government, which is really unfortunate. And I've, I've been working on a essay about buying our own bullshit because that is literally what we're doing um, in a in a way to, as you mentioned, greenwash what's actually happening. And of course, it's been designed as a way to anyway. You know what? That's a subject for another day. We could go down that rabbit hole. But I really wanted to come back to full circle, you know, which you highlight in, in the title of the article, which is that, you know, this is a form of environmental racism. And I think that when when people say something like environmental racism, it can be very much like, you know, what does that mean? But I think that this provides such a clear example of what is environmental racism because you specifically are seeing this happen in black and brown communities in North Carolina. Can you kind of um, share a bit about, um, you know, because I think you alluded to or, or mentioned specifically like industry did try to put one of these CAFOs like near a very fancy golf course and now all of a sudden there was huge resistance to it. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great anecdote to share that I often talk about because I think it just highlights how how strong the element of racism is in this story, how important it is, how critical, you know, how racism has been has been a part of this industry's business model from day one. Um, you know, it there's a reason why these these facilities are located in the communities that they are and that story, yeah, is about how, you know, black, brown, indigenous communities had been fighting factory farms in their neighborhoods, had been, had been trying to prevent them from locating near their homes for a very long time. And it wasn't until one of these CAFOs was planned to be built near a fancy golf resort called Pinehurst. It's a famous golf resort, golf club in North Carolina uh, that finally the legislator who represented that district said, oh, no, we can't have this, you know, this uh, type of farming in this community. And it was only then that um, a moratorium was passed on the construction of new hog cafos. So I think that just really highlights, you know, that that was a wealthy white community. And once that group of people was threatened by this odor and the pollution that was when things things started to to change a little bit. Of course, that grandfathered in all of the existing CAFOs, and by that point, they had fully saturated eastern North Carolina pretty much. So the existing ones, you know, continue to pollute communities of color who are 
yes, very much disproportionately harmed by by this industry in this place. And, you know, I mentioned property values and lifestyle, but it's also health issues. I mean, you've noted that there are higher rates of asthma and, and other diseases near these CAFOs, even when controlled for other factors. So I think, you know, really important to drive home that this is in a complete and total way decimating these communities. Um, so as we mentioned at the beginning, you have a documentary called The Smell of Money. Um, people can learn more about that at smellofmoneydoc.com. Um you recently premiered uh, this documentary uh, in April. Can you share um, a little bit more about, you know, how people might be able to uh, view the documentary, to learn more about these communities, meet some of the people who have been fighting this fight? You know, what are kind of the plans, um, at least as of now, that that you have to kind of share the work you've been you've been collecting? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. So. Our documentary, as you said, uh, premiered in Sarasota, Florida in early April and will be having an international premiere at Hot Docs, a documentary festival in Toronto, actually this coming Saturday. It's playing in Toronto on Saturday and then the following week as well on Tuesday. So if you are in Canada, you can absolutely, you could see it there. Um, I think actually the show will come out after the premiere, but um, it'll be, you know, available to audiences in Canada for, for five days online and then, of course, in, in person. And then after that, you know, we don't have specific plans to announce yet, but we will be screening at other festivals, ideally around the United States and potentially in other countries as well. Um, and then our ultimate goal is to hopefully um, land the film onto a streaming platform that's accessible to everyone at least in the United States, who will be able to watch it, um, watch it via that that platform. Um, but for now, we're just taking it on the festival route. And yeah, you can definitely stay tuned and follow us for updates on our website, which is, as you said, smellofmoneydoc.com. All right, Jamie, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your work. We'll definitely be uh, following along your journey and be sure to share with our audience if they, uh, if they can come and uh, see the documentary either locally here in the Atlanta, Georgia area or if it becomes available on streaming platforms. Uh, real quick before we let you go, is there any social media channels people can follow along this journey? Yes, you can follow us on social media at Smell of Money Doc. So our handle is at Smell of Money Doc, both Instagram and Twitter. Okay, great. Well, uh, once again, um, thank you and congratulations on your um, premiere. I'm sure that that uh, felt good after um, a lot of hard work. And, and yeah, we, we appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you're doing and appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue with you. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Farmers Jam Radio. Special thanks to Jamie Berger for joining us and also for all the incredible reporting she's been doing over the last several years to bring this story to light. As always, Farmers Jam Radio is created by Longleaf Media, hosted by myself, James Carr, and produced by Cam Christian with music 
Spine Nomad, you can get plugged into the whole world of Farmer's Jam at www.thefarmersjam.com. You can find our old episodes, you can learn about our flavors of jam, and you can learn about our upcoming events. It's gonna be a big year, y'all, so we're looking forward to jamming out with you. We hope you stay safe out there and jam on.